Hi, thank you for downloading the Listening to Civil Society, A Catalyst for Change, Part 2 podcast, brought to you by Fixes. Fixes is a charity that works with young people who want to use their experience to help fix the future. This podcast is a Q&A session hosted by Sir Martin Lewis, the President of Fixes. The questions are answered by Nick Coldry, the Vice President of Fixes and Professor of Media, Communication and Social Theory at the London School of Economics. Jim McNamara, Professor of Public Communications at the University of Technology in Sydney and Margot Horsley, the Chief Executive of Fixes. If you would like to get in touch or find out more about Fixes, visit our website on www.fixes.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Can I just kick off with one? Because if you're listening in the way that you suggest, you can't take decisions based on what everyone says because people will have different opinions. And therefore, what what you need to do as a government or as a corporation, you, you, you listen to the majority view or you are guided by listening. But that means that a lot of people who you're listening to are left out because they're not part of the, of, of, or, or their view, their decision is not, it, it, you know, what they think is not something that is echoed by government. So, so uh, I mean, in a sense, at the end of the day, doesn't the government have to decide? And um, I know that when, uh, when Maggie Thatcher was in power, what she did was she would never take a policy decision without listening to the opposite point of view. Yeah. Someone who was, you know, really, really strong on it. I mean, you're hinting that that kind of thing doesn't, really happen happen anymore. But but um, at the end of the day, doesn't government have to take tough decisions and doesn't it have to compromise and doesn't that mean not listening to a fairly large section of, of society? It's a very good point, uh, Martin. Um, a couple of things I'd, I'd comment briefly on that is governments have got to make informed decisions. And the problem is uh, if you make a decision and you're not even aware of many views, then you're either not making a majority decision or you're making an ill-informed decision. So in the first instance, and I use that phrase in the architecture of listening, it's an appropriate response. An appropriate response may well be to make a tough decision and say, here's what we're going to do and show leadership. But at least you have to, first of all, be informed. And the issue with Brexit is a real troublesome one. I mean, a 51 to 49 vote, it's a no-win, isn't it? Whichever way you go, you're going to upset half the population. Um, but uh, in most cases it's making an informed decision so even if there's a lot of opposition you want to know what the opposition is. Um, the second point I quickly make is too we have a governments have to go with majority that's the principle of democracy but um, we have a, a, an undue faith in consensus. Uh, we often believe there's going to be consensus and in fact uh, it's actually rare particularly in a diverse population. We now live in very diverse societies so we need a way to deal with dissensus and we're not very good at that. Uh, and what that leads to is that policy making may not be a single arbitrary policy, but there are ways to develop uh, flexibility in policies. We do it with marginalised groups and disadvantaged people, that they are not the majority, but we may have to make a policy decision specifically for those people. And when you take those policy decisions, you as a government then have to drive it through. I mean, you as, yes. as a politician, you have to have a belief what you're saying has got to be a more informed, informed belief, belief by listening, by listening to And if you have an informed belief, you then have the rationale to support your decision. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to, I think you raised a really fundamental point, and it's the sort of mirror image at the point that voice is not just about me speaking, 
it's about listening adjustment. But at the same time, me listening doesn't necessarily mean me changing everything I do in the exactly. way you want. Yes. And that way we just have populism, we just have chaos, we just have the biggest force. And that's exactly what we don't want. So listening has to be about organizing society, government in a way that people trust the outcome, feel they have been registered in some way, even though it's not the outcome they wanted. That's, that's the key difficult thing we have to think about, and that is mm. the core of the point. It's like the Obama response that you talked yeah. about, where people feel that at least we're being listened to, even if the government isn't, and, isn't doing what we're suggesting. Yeah, and just a quick follow-up on that. That is an interesting thing that I haven't had a lot of research on, but when I've interviewed people who, who had made a submission or done something and the government had done differently, they were not unhappy. They were unhappy if they thought no one had listened to them. But they actually said things like, well, we know the government can't do everything we want. Or we know that I'm a customer and the corporation can't change just for me. But they demanded to be listened to. They expected it. They didn't expect. They had actually really low expectations of the organization changing. So, I, I, I've got a whole load of questions. But it's your, it's, it's your turn to ask questions. Uh, yeah. Yes, and if you would just identify the organization you come from for the sound. Sure, sure. Uh, my name is... Um, Excuse me, my name is... By the way, these little things are microphones in the middle of the table. They're actually quite good at picking My name is Kavika, and I'm Communications Director at Step Up to Serve, the organization that coordinates the I Will campaign. Along the, the thread of, of, of listening and perhaps undue faith and consensus, what, one of the things that I was reflecting on in the presentation is what if the voices that we want to listen to or that we should be listening to are actually taking down democracy? Um, so you, you touched on that just now, but my, my specific question is, how do you deal with, um, with trying to create consensus when the, the sentiment is already very polarized? Well, again, you've raised the fundamental <laughs> question, and I think, let's start with the metaphor of a conversation, right? uh, an angry conversation where everyone has a stake in getting what they want out of the conversation. We're all familiar with that. Um, in that sort of situation, the only way, positive way forward, is to acknowledge people's right to speak. They have to speak. You, blocking them was never going to work. They've got to speak. But somehow being able to communicate them also that the way they're speaking is preventing other people speaking in a way that they, turned the other way around, they would not accept. Now that's very difficult when the consensus is so fragmented, so things are so polarized, they don't even regard the other person as having a right to be speaking. But then you've got to confront that head on and say that's not compatible with what democracy is, I with the way that you would want to be speak, uh, respected in another situation. But that's a very difficult conversation. And normally, and this is, you also raise implicitly the question about time. Uh, a reason why governments don't do what they should do is often they simply don't have time. They have mm. to push it through now yeah. because of this or that <coughs> pressure. Just as in the conversation, you've only got 30 minutes to resolve something in these two hours. Yeah. And you have to cut through that and you make those sort of mistakes. So time is a crucial thing and there's a time deficit in democracy right now, mm. which is making listening harder and harder. Time, um, time and is an issue. And that sort of leads to a point I'd add is that when we do the research, there are various methods of listening at an organizational level, research, but there's also sorts, all sorts of forums and consultations in groups. 
What we do want to do is try and push people towards more deliberative forms of participation. So if people get involved in a rowdy town hall meeting and there's a lot of shouting or just simply letter writing to other invisible people in social media, that tends to create the sort of situations where it's just going to escalate and never resolve. But if you can bring people, and I've just been involved in a consultation in Australia with developers and residents fighting over high rise versus open land, a lot of anger on each side. And initially it wasn't working, but when we got them together, and it took days, several days of sitting and letting the others speak, and they started to understand, and it does start to come towards a, a more, you know, the, the citizens got to understand the property development. They didn't even know, for example, the property developers were paying for all the local roads and sewerage, and without them the local council couldn't provide that. And they went, oh, well, we didn't know that. So they softened their attitude, and the property developers said, well, we do want to sell these properties, so of course we've got to listen to you. So deliberative uh, forums and deliberative approaches, it is limited by time. Uh, consultations are often given very short time, but you've got to avoid the, the, the letter. The, we can always write angry letters to invisible people. When you're sitting face to face across the table and you listen to the other person genuinely speak and then you speak, it tends to break that down. And you do, you can move people away from polarisation to some extent. There are always going to be exceptions and that's why we need leadership and government. I think on a very practical level, so I'm, I'm coming down now to a fixer's level, um, we have some basic rules in place where people can only do things that are legal, for example, or that you can publish. And there's always another side to a story, but actually what we're doing is we're looking at their opinion, their experience, and that is valid. You can't take it away from them. I'm looking at Nigel now because we've had stories in the past where I can remember uh, a young lad um, and he was, he was writing words and he was talking about um, young girls actually you know, wanting sex and all the rest of it and she, they saw it as their fault and he wanted to have a platform to talk about that and we had to go through quite a process with him I think possibly and his friends as well where we were trying to get them to understand that actually getting you know, putting the back up of the audience that you're trying to talk to was a bit of an issue and um, also it wasn't legal to do that and you had to put the balance in mm. and it took time so that time point was really important mm, yeah. and we spent time getting to a point where that was understood and that fix then went ahead. It was still a fantastic fix but actually he had the girls on board as well yeah. and it became much more um, together, interactive and they worked forward. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting point there because there, there are a lot of charities like uh, you know, Fixers, a lot of organisations like Fixers who have a, um, a collective voice where they, they brought together a whole load of news opinions and they want to present them to <coughs> government, where they want to present them to people. Now, um, I think that you were, you were warning against the dangers of organisations like, and there'll be lots of charities, lots of people here in this room that, that are represented, uh, you know, represent charities, and they would say, but actually we're very good at knowing what the people that, what the people that we help think. Mm. You know, we're very good at that. And, and, and in fact, we often owe our existence to the fact that we are pulling together opinions and what people are saying. You are a bit dismissive of organisations doing that, and I don't, you know, I mean, there's got to be some yeah. hierarchy here somewhere, hasn't there? Yeah, you're very astute to pick up on that, yes. Um, I, I'm sceptical, and I think it's a healthy scepticism that, of course, governments and corporations are going to listen to representative organisations. To me, that is a necessary function. But I do advocate outreach beyond that, 
um, because I do find, particularly in large institutionalised organisations, they end up having their own set of politics. Um, yeah, but outreach beyond that means, hey, I'm not trusting what you're saying, so I'm going well, to talk to the people that you're representing myself. Well, I think you can uh, always conduct research and consultations more broadly, and an organisation that won't allow you, take for example, I looked at the National Farmers Body here in the UK, and in business and industry, at bases they now call the department, they said, oh, well, we, what about agriculture? Oh, we talked to the National Farmer. Have you ever gone out and talked to others? And they never had. And when you go out, you actually find a diversity of views. Now, the representative view is an important one, but we've got to understand the difference in views. There are representative views, which is, and I've worked in big organisations, that's a crunching together of an average, right? <coughs> and yet there is diversity. If you want to make good policy, you need to understand the average, you need to understand the diversity and maybe reflect that. And I think that's the problem, is we reduced everything to 50.1%, and that doesn't serve society very well. Yeah. well I think it's quite interesting, because we, as an organisation, if you like, we only, we only talk in terms of the voices of the young people mm. themselves, and we refuse to talk as an organisation. And that creates all sorts of havoc, because we're putting individuals forward to say what they want to say and the way they want to say it, and it's not for us to dictate. Um, it, if we're working alongside other organisations, and I'll say this in these four walls, sometimes it causes conflict because mm. they think we're stealing their space, but we're not. We're interested in having those voices heard because they are, they're not representatives of anybody, they're just representing themselves. And my, my question is, so who isn't at the table? So if you're in an organisation, you've got yeah. the youth panel and all the rest of it, are those people actually genuinely representing everybody? And of course they can't. Um, when they're taken into government to look at an agenda and put stuff forward, um, quite often we've got this feedback from young people we work with that actually they're still standing on the agenda that the organisation has created. Hmm. And so the conversation is limited by the agenda that the organisation has. And of course organisations are there trying to drive change, but actually they're also driving their own sustainability and the funding links to certain things and you do certain things. So um, <coughs> it, gets, it, it, it gets stuck. And, and Margaret, because of that approach by fixers, I remember <coughs> telling me so, sort of many months ago, they said, you know, the problem is we don't often fit neatly into the mm. niches that have been created by the people who are trying to shape policy or come up with funding or whatever it might be. And fixers is, because you're actually going along with what you know, you know, with a lot of what we've been hearing, you don't fit into the preordained boxes mm. that that everyone has said everyone ought to fit into. It is very different. But can I just say, I'm not disrespecting organisations at all. I think it's necessary to have those majority views because they help government to have that. But there are other views out. You know, they are obliged to present a majority view in their organisation. And if anyone who works in an organisation knows there's often dissenting voices and different views, and the government often needs to explore a bit more broadly. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Yes. Hello, uh, uh, my name is Jane Bryant. I'm from Artswork, and we work uh, through the arts to facilitate young people to find their voice, and we do that in all sorts of ways. Um, I wanted to pick up something, Margot, that you said, um, and then develop it a little bit. Uh, I have heard a young person say, uh, I am not representative of anybody other than myself. I am a young person and I am an individual. Um, I've also spoken with some quite angry young people who are in the care system 
who said they had a weariness of being consulted. They kept being <coughs> consulted and being asked for their views, and then they saw that actually nothing changed. And that really touches on the, the final bullet point, and I'm sorry to jump to the end of the bullet points, but this vicious cycle of failing um, trust and declining participation. If we have young people who are disenfranchised, and they, they are disenfranchising themselves because of that failing uh, trust, because there is no feeling that anybody's actually actively listening and taking their views and doing something with them, we've got some challenges. And I guess that's why we're all here today. But that final bullet point is, is something that I think we need to tackle. Yeah, and, it, and it's why I think the figure was, about the police, 30,000 disaffected young people who are uh, you know, across the country. Who, who don't yeah. feel that, that you know, they're the ones turning to knife crime. And, uh, and, and, and I found the same thing in my research, that people were tired of being asked this in consultations generally. The number said the same, we're asked the same thing every year, over and over again, and nothing changes. But that, I took that back to one of the problems of governments are risk averse, and under, because of fears of privacy and data hacks, they were keeping everything separate. And when I talk to senior legal advisors, there's no reason why consultation data, when people voluntarily give their view, it doesn't fit into the same category as medical records, etc. Um, so the lack of the data silos were causing lack of sharing of data, and literally one department has no idea what the other, even if they're doing a consultation at the same time. It depends on goodwill civil service talking to each other, there was no system to okay, plan can it. I, yeah. okay, can I just ask you whether, whether the young people that you talked about who complained, was it because their view was not a majority view and the majority suggestions were being implemented, but they represented a minority and therefore felt ignored because, because that minority view wasn't in the mainstream? I don't think they'd thought about it in that way. But that would, but that would be yes. an explanation, wouldn't it? It could possibly be. I think because they were young people in care, their views, good thing, were often sought about how to uh, facilitate improvement in the quality of education or life around them. And some of these young people are moved many times through the care system. Um, and I think that they were expressing an anger that they were frequently being asked about things, but nothing ever seemed to change. Now, whether that was true or their perception, it is, we can hear it a lot, can't we, in the people we work with. Nothing ever changes, so why should I bother articulating my views? And that's something that we need to address. And that's something that fixes through these small films, these videos can help with, I think. Yes, right down at the end. Uh, um, so my name is uh, Ruben Boy and I'm a fixer. And um, I basically did, uh, I created a poetry illustrated scene with fixers because last year, quite my throat. <laughs> last By year, the way, are you one of the videos? Have you done one of the videos? I'm working on it now with and them. As we speak. Um, yeah. As we speak. So last year, my boyfriend and I survived the fire in council accommodation and for a long time, even just being in council accommodation, I felt like my voice wasn't heard. And for a long time, like I would send emails to people, I would contact the organisations, I would follow their procedures, my voice wasn't heard. And I think like 
with fixes and I agree with what you're saying as a young person sometimes you do give up and you think well what's the point of me saying anything if I'm not going to be heard and I think fixes facilitates um, a space for a young person to feel like your experiences do mean something because they do like your experiences shape your future like I'm 23 and I know what I've been through is going to shape how I treat people it's going to shape how I deal with others and I think having things like fixes does really help because for a long time I felt like my voice wasn't heard because when the fire occurred Grenfell happened and then my story was left aside and then I had to find a way of finding my own inner strength and finding a way of motivating myself and inspiring myself to do things and I think it's important and I think being here today is it's helping me a lot because I'm realizing that yeah organizations don't listen and some organizations are packed with so many different things that they have to do that they do leave people like me aside where I don't know where I fit in I don't know what to do I don't know who to speak to and fixes has allowed me to understand that I can use my experiences to help other people and I think more organizations should be like that and a lot of uh, your predecessors who've made uh, videos for fixes have gone on to exactly. acquire a global following yeah, in fact exactly. you know set up and, and indeed set up organizations that are dealing with the same issue and the, and, and the same problem. Uh, yes, Margaret first, yeah. I think it's, it's quite interesting because we've done, like I said, we've done a lot of research by bringing young people together on some big topics, so you know, gender, CSE and, and so on. And when they come together, um, it's quite interesting. It's like they met the day before. They've got something in common, which is their fixers projects. Um, but a lot of the research, when they start talking to talking to institutions so you know we do NHS we do police you know we, we look at this kind of stuff and it keeps coming out time and time again the most marginalized young people that there are don't necessarily have the skills and experience to get into the jobs within the organizations that they want to challenge in terms in terms of their views so I don't think we're seeing that population come through into the institutions who can be listening to other people like them and therefore you're, you're starting to put that experience inside the organisations. They started talking about things like you know, let's have a bursary scheme so that we can go in and, and do this. Um, we've got fixers working in the health service not with a, with a bursary scheme but because they keep going wanting to talk to more and more professionals to share their experience. I think we've got a real problem but the issue is that who's not at the table and how do we get them to the table and how do we get them to engage with organisations and I think I just, you know, I, I was watching organisations that I feel happy fix, there's a load of people in the room, they're representative of organisations and their question is how do I take this away and use what I've learned to change what's going on in my organisation. I don't have an answer to that, we've had a great personal conversation, somebody's been really moved by what they've heard, they'll remember it for a long long time, they'll share it with the people they go back to but actually the structure around them and the people in power in those organisations somehow we need to find a way of getting them to listen. Um, I think we, the reason we're in such a deep problem here is we've got at least three different problems overlapping and they're all creating a much bigger problem. We need to separate them. One is really serious long-term discrimination and people not being listened to, the sort of thing that Grenfell expresses. A certain type of person just has not been listened to, period. And that's a historic problem. Then you've got the sort of complexity problems that Jim brings out, that as a society of 70 million people, it's going to be extremely hard for any government, however well-resourced, to even begin to listen adequately. That's a technical problem, if you like, although it 
pleasing. But there's also a third problem, which is the one that's the more subtle one that you've just raised, which is that the listening is just the start of a process. And it's when the process is incomplete that you have a problem. Imagine you're just trying to talk to someone in a department or something you manage, and they come to you thinking you're going to listen to them. They, they regard you as a listening type person. And then you have a nice conversation. It's quite clear you, you were going to act that way anyway. You've actually got a deficit. You've actually damaged the relationship by doing that. And I think that's often what governments do. We, we, the past 20 years have been a lot of attempts to listen. The Labour government, we might forget it, introduced participatory budgeting, inspired by Brazil, uh, inspired by the power inquiry in 2007 that said the British government's actually broken. But the failure of actually the well-meaning attempt to actually do it has deepened the very same problem it was trying to solve. And we are also socially responsible because just a one little anecdote, about 15, 20 years ago, I did a, some research with a mass observation <coughs> archive, which still exists at Sussex University to listen to people. They write diaries and things. And I asked them, basically, is democracy working? I thought it was a nice question to ask a fledgling researcher. And a nurse did a response that I have never forgotten. It was so eloquent. She said, well, I've... I've, I've spent 40 years working in an organization that has never listened to me about something I know. So why would I expect democracy to listen to me about things that I don't really know a lot about? Mm -hmm. And that summed up the naivety of the question. In other words, even fixers does all its work, but the process has to be completed other places. Yes. When people go to work and they're, they're not listened to, then you have a deficit, and we're all responsible for that deficit. It all links in, mm. but we have to start the process somewhere. Uh, so Peter Grigg from the Children's Society. Um, there's so much going on here. I'll try and keep it pithy. Um, I'm thinking about the sort of time deficit and how bad listening can be worse than no listening. Um, I'm thinking about the sort of the gender bias in listening and how stereotypical point. Maybe it's because men are rubbish at listening. I don't know. Um, but I'm also thinking about consult <coughs> consultation process. We do a lot of this as a campaign organisation. Try and get. Um, views in front of government, and we've been trying to get better at personalising it around people's story. We've had two experiences recently where we, we sent in thousands of responses, something, and they were all tailored and personalised. And in one consultation, they were ignored and put aside, saying, because they were come, they'd come from a campaign organisation, we're not going to look at these. And in the other place, they said, and funnily enough, that was the one that disagreed with the position being taken. In the other place, they said, Actually, we, we take the point, we really agree with the, the wholehearted endorsement of this position. We're not going to analyse the responses though, but we will know that you agree with us. It's quite interesting. In neither uh, situation was it feel, did it feel particularly uh, endorsing. But, um, yeah, it's not really and, and I, the, but the, the, the quick point I want to make is the thing that I am actually really worried about is the, um, in the development of machine learning, that we've got an inherent bias in that, which I think listening could play one of the solutions to. Firstly, that it's based on mostly quantitative data. It doesn't seem to be a great role for qualitative voice in decisions. Secondly, that most of that data is marginalised groups for whom there is probably more data. I'm thinking about children in the care system, children in other situations. Decisions will be made about their lives and therefore the, the role of their voice and the lack of their voice in those decisions becomes an even greater panic. And I wonder, as a group, whether maybe we've lost this public consultation debate and improving government debate. I don't know, that sounds cynical and pessimistic. 
The one maybe we should be thinking about is the next debate about voice in machine learning and what we could do to improve this framework before it's even a framework. Well, comment on machine. Uh, um, I totally agree with you that qualitative research, but machine learning is only an aid. Yeah. It, and I totally disagree with automated, fully automated analysis, and we didn't use any of that. Uh, we used a machine learning tool, and you use that really to sift the data down. But you end up doing a quantitative layer, but then you end up, and that's really to find out the most frequently occurring terms and concepts, but then you end up with rows and rows of, and you're looking for key concepts in context. Uh, what is the, so, you know, we found the term consultant being used frequently. Well, what, what's it saying about, you've still then got to do the qualitative work, um, on that. So I definitely am not promoting um, machine learning purely as an automated tool. It's an aid to help text analysis people analyze large volumes of text, corpus, uh, corpus of text. Um, and the only other quick comment is, to address your second point, is I also like mixed method research because you need to test it then against quantitative research to try and find out is that a commonly occurring view. So the qualitative may tell you a whole lot of issues but it's the quantitative then says, is this a predominant, is this a view held predominantly or is a minority view that's being expressed quite loudly? So good researchers would do a mixture of quantitative and qualitative research. Yes. Karina um, um, from Lankelly Chase. So we are um, a foundation who work in partnership with people across the UK to change the systems that perpetuate severe multiple disadvantage. Um, most of our work is rooted in complexity theory and systems thinking. And I can't help but, so the same, got lots going on in my head, but I can't help feel that we're missing a really fundamental element to the, the idea of listening to learning, to learn, by not addressing the fact that all of this is rooted in a mechanistic worldview. And actually we are, like you, like you said, Jim, we are humans and the, we create living systems. And actually it's that worldview that needs to shift in order for power to start being shared because we have to work, basically what we're doing is we have to encourage people who have formal power to give it up, to share it with people who have informal power. And that's also rooted in who defines what knowledge is. And so I feel like we're missing a really fundamental part of this conversation, which is which worldview do we want to dream into? And the mechanistic worldview will keep us all kind of locked into where we are and not really being able to listen to each other. And I think in addition to that, there is this idea, particularly in culturally in the UK, that conflict is bad. Polarities will always exist and we should harness that because energetically that's what goes on in the world. That's what keeps us thriving. And how do we get better to learn processes that enable us to act and think more systemically? and go through conflicts to come out the other side so we can all be moving along as opposed to always leaving somebody behind. And again, I think it's something that we're shying away from that feels quite fundamental. That's quite a really interesting point about how you bring together formal power and informal power, how you get people to give up formal mm -hmm. power or, or create a different structure because mm -hmm. they are embracing, uh, or have to embrace in some way, the in informal power that we've been talking about. Well, I think we are victims of the Enlightenment, so-called, um, in that science has come to help our world, but science has come to create a mechanistic world, uh, the focus on quantitative research, uh, numbers, um, which is dominant across management. The only thing I'd say is there, there are signs of, of change and improvement. 
Uh, and you know, Nick's point about legitimacy is a really key one. Even in the corporate world, I'm finding there's a shift away from basic systems theory to adaptive systems theory, learning organizations, and they're not necessarily doing it out of goodwill. They're doing it because they're under threat. You know, organizations are not surviving. Social purpose is now a buzzword in senior management. And I'm working with some corporations who believe that government in a complex age can't actually provide all the services required and that corporations have probably got to step up and do this. Now, why would they spend shareholders' money on it? Well, survival. Um, so I think these forces, uh, there's the sort of a self-regulating adhocracy about it. And if, if organisations lose enough trust and their methods are not working and they're not adapting and they're pushing people down, I mean, the ultimate result is civil, civil war uh, and revolution. Um, now, it would be hard to imagine this society having one, but plenty of societies have had one. And I think the long-term thinkers realise that if we kept going the route we're going, we could in fact find ourselves with civil unrest and eventually civil war. And that disrupts the economy. Um, capitalism doesn't want that. So maybe there's got to be self-regulation. I just, as you raise a really deep point, I, I take a slightly different view from Jim, I think. Um, I, I don't think we need to abandon our whole mindset because I think the mindset is so rich, so complex. There's so many different ways of thinking about uh, how we reach agreement, what sciences and so on and so forth. We need to just think smartly about where we can draw good resources. But then we hit a roadblock, which is the one you hinted at, which is how can an organization be induced to change? They need an incentive. Uh, they have to take risks, but they need to know it's a good risk to take. Mm. And if you think about it from the point of view of government, um, something I'm very sympathetic to at standing outside government is what must it be like trying to manage a society on the scale of 70 million, let alone 1.3 billion, where we have a very often a certain part of the British media is difficult. <laughs> the tabloid press is very, very difficult. It is absolutely not listening. It is not about listening. It is about shouting and saying it's listening to the people and so on. This creates it's enormous shaping. shaping and this creates enormous problems for and, government who are trying to develop long-term policy change. We've seen this again and again, a good policy gets crushed. And this is time again, I mm. think. There's very little time to have the conversations. And so every, we need to get away from the idea of blaming any one party. Mm. And so everyone is part of this mess, if you like. We've all contributed over time to this. Can I just we need to unlock that. A tiny anecdote about that. Uh, Richard Holbrook was, uh, he was Obama's Af Afghan representative, but before that, he had actually um, negotiated the peace deal that sorted out Bosnia and Serbia. And I interviewed him about it just afterwards. And you know what he said? The only way that he was able to do it with several parties involved was he got them all into the Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio and they had no means of communicating with the outside world whatsoever. And he said, you're not coming out of not here out until we have an agreement. So there was no, and certainly there was none of the grandstanding every day, or grandstanding every 30 seconds, where on Brexit. So, I mean, you know, if you could just kill all the media noise about Brexit, lock them all in a room until they sort it out and say, you know, come out, come out, and then you can put it to the people or do whatever you want to do. But, but I mean, you know, I found that that was, absolutely fascinating and he was talking about listening but listening without the interference of occasionally informed but also occasionally ill-informed comment yeah. which drips into people's And that's the lines. deliberative process that yeah. I was talking about is that you've got to get beyond the shouting and let's face it any one of us has a personal conflict when you first come together there's a bit of 
finger pointing, and but you cool down, you calm down, and you start to, and that's what we. And Nick's right about the time. I agree with that. That unless we provide space for this to happen, um, media just escalate everything. And I think journalism has lost its way. Um, and there are attempts to reinvent journalism. At Don't the stop me on that because I agree. <laughs> and I have very firm ideas of it yet. Hello, fascinating conversation. My name's Rania from Step Up to Serve. Um, is there also a fundamental issue about starting the listening? too late or even seeing it as, a, as having a start and a finish so don't we need to be continuously listening using voice to shape uh, synthesizing views so we don't necessarily get to the point where it's polarized there's option a and you either agree or you disagree you've actually been part of a journey that's a really important point uh, listening is not something you do for a period and stop it is an ongoing and that's the thing about you may not reach agreement and there we could borrow from sort of public diplomacy to some extent is that even when you disagree you just got to keep talking because as long as you keep talking you're not at war and it's a process and you have some faith that at some point we might reach uh, some sort of agreement or compromise and compromise is required but it is a process and I accept it's a very difficult process when you've got diversity um, but it's an essential process because unless people feel valued they will withdraw from the system and when enough people withdraw from the system you don't have a society. I think it's quite interesting because we have examples of young people that we meet. I can think of one who has Tourette's. And the first time our coordinator met him, she sat in a room and he didn't speak. And she said, I will come back and we'll have another conversation. Um, and this happened four times over two or three months before he eventually started to speak mm -hmm. to us. We had somebody else who, um, in fact, you met Gareth, and he would say, you know, well, I'll meet you but I don't trust you, and that went on. And he'd been in prison and various things, had a very difficult background, didn't trust anyone, and certainly didn't know what it was like to be trusted. So mm. I think sometimes it does take time to get started. I think we get to a point where people, um, they know that they will be listened to because they've seen people listening to them. They can tell by the body language in a room through the process, you know, they always meet their audience, if you like. They can see they've been listened to and they know that something's happened and there's, a, there's something that changes in them. Um, and at that point, I think you get this strong sense of, I know who I am, here's the issue I'm working with, this is my, you know, these are the circumstances I find myself in and you can take control. Your expectation to be listened to sets you in good stead for the journey forward and I think that's what I see time and time again and they just go um, but something has fundamentally changed right at their core it's not something that's superficial mm -hmm. yes. um, Hi I'm Zoe, I'm from The Mix um, and we work with about 2.5 million um, under 25 in the UK every year and that's a really interesting point because most of the people that we work with are 16 and over and actually by that point they've been taught in education to learn, to listen um, and to be educated, not to contribute towards education and their own environment. Same goes for the voting age. So at what point can we switch that over and from birth actually acknowledge that there's a contribution by every young person that can be made and teach them how to listen and to be listened to? Um, I don't know how we do that, but it's a massive problem for us you know, engaging with them. I'm laughing because it's just, you know, um, the kids tell us that the parents are not listening and mm. actually we're the role models for the kids. Yeah. So there's something about society as a whole mm. sitting here. Um, I have watched, um, I saw some parents of autistic young people in a room for the first time with a group of autistic young people who said, 
I have never listened to a group of autistic young people talking to each other. You know, it's unbelievable in some degrees. And we see it um, time and time again. I think um, the work we've just done on body image is interesting because what the young people identified was, was that the parents in the older age groups don't know how to listen to them. And so actually, there's something about parents and other age groups, and maybe it'll grow out, I don't know. But we don't know how to do it, if you like. Hmm. So how do we help them to feel like they can be listened to? You know, it's a yeah, real, yeah. and young people are identifying these things as issues. They don't know, their parents don't know how to discuss various things with them mm. because they don't know the words and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know how we get through that. I think an interesting one for us is how young people communicate with each other. It's very different, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer communication. It's actually very different than to, yeah. you know, to, to parents, to, to teachers or to government, whoever else might try to listen um, so that's something to learn from, I think. Yeah. You know. it's I mean, the gender, we had a gender discussion um, and various people in the room, and it was quite clear, you know, this was a continuum. Uh, one, L, one end was here, one end was here, and you could be anywhere on this spectrum. <coughs> and for young people, that was perfectly normal and acceptable. Mm. People in the room from different generations didn't know quite how to cope with this until they saw them as people and just started listening, and then it started to be... Oh, I see how that works. Um, whether that continued when they left the room, I don't know. But you could you could see that suddenly something changed. And so maybe there's something in that. You know, we need to see people as people and treat them as people with feelings and things to say and experience to share. We don't have to agree with it, but we can listen to it. Yeah, and openness and empathy. Unless there's an openness, an openness to hear what is against me, as Gardamer says, uh, and empathy is an underlying principle. And it's not, it shouldn't be any surprise that peer-to-peer -peer is now the most trusted form of communication. Why? Because peers are open and peers are empathetic to the person. And it wasn't that long ago we used to say children are to be seen and not heard. Mm. You know? <laughs> yes. um, just to add to your point before, I feel like, um, especially after going to the body image event that Fix has had, um, I think it's just charity does start at home and I think before we had a conversation with Lucy about how she'd started implementing a rule at the house where she leaves, everyone has to leave their phone, um, like they have to leave their phone somewhere that no one can access it and I feel like, you know before when you were, um, I think you spoke about how instead of blaming people it's like starting with what's within and I think the whole idea is even though these organisations are these big organisations, it's the individuals that are in there. And I think, well, if I learn how to listen, then because it's starting from within, I can then help you learn how to listen. And then it just, it's just like a domino effect. Because I think although we're trying to like, I think this is how I see it anyways, we try and change the world or change organisations, but I think it does take time. And I think the change has to come from each and every one of us because like, we are the ones that want to be listened to, and in order to be listened to, you have to do that. You have to do that first before you can ask someone else to do that. I think that's a really fundamental point. It's not as if we're asking people to learn some arcane skill that's never been invented before. Um, you know, human beings are disposed to listen. I mean, what we know about brain science now is that when I see you feeling pain, I part of my brain senses pain in some way too. That's how we know each other are in pain, because we, it's mutual. We're oriented to each other. That's the type of beings we are. But the problem is that it's very hard to scale that up. 
And there are so many reasons why we're angry and predisposed not to listen as well. And so separating the two out is really, really difficult. But we all have that capacity. Um, and that goes back to the big data point. That's something that big systems cannot do. So if we are going to trust more and more big systems processing data is something I'm extremely interested in the moment, and we need to for certain purposes, we cannot assume they're like us and they have the capacity to listen. Mm -hmm. They have the capacity to process. Yes. Only human beings have the capacity to register each other's pain, to listen. And if we, we bet on technology to solve the problems of listening completely, then we are making a fundamentally And that's why bet. in my architecture of listening, technology is about the sixth point. Um, it, it serves a purpose, but it has to be framed within culture and other things. Yes. Um, Claire Winston from NHS England. I completely agree about I was interested in your points one and two. They're actually about psychology and emotion and stuff like that rather than actually attributes and things that we pay money for. Um, I thought I, you were going to say you found the report. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'm really interested as well, so in, in the NHS, we are, and the quote you put right at the start was really interesting to me, um, because we are swimming in data more than we know what to do with sometimes, and the patient voice and the public voice is one that sometimes comes secondary to other forms of data around stats, around activity and what, what we're busy doing. You know, everyone's very interested in what we're busy doing and the media is all over it. So do you have any tips on how we can raise the perceived value of patient and public voice? Um, I, I saw some really good work in the NHS and I spent a lot of time with NHS when I was here in 2016. Um, but interestingly, uh, we get into a habit of formulaic approaches. And for example, I think it was from the NHS, I, when I was at Airedale Hospital, every time a patient leaves, they, <coughs> they're asked to fill out a survey. And I met a number of patients and they said, I'm an outpatient, I come in once a week and this is the tenth bloody week in a row that I've had to fill out this damn form. Now that's not really listening. That it just becomes a tokenistic ritual. So you know, my advice is, you've, if you want to listen, you've got to provide a space, and you've got to provide a space that the other wants to participate in. And too often in an organisation, we decide the space. We're going to do a survey. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And that may not suit the other person. It may not suit their timing, their their, their location their attitude, they may be mistrusting. So I think it's often you've got to listen in order to find out how to listen. You've got to ask people how would they like to be, you know, no one's ever, of all the spam email I get and of all the subscriptions, no one ever asks me how would I like to receive information. They just say tick the box or uncheck the box. So they've already decided how I can express my voice. And so um, my point earlier about the Enlightenment was not to criticise science, but to, but to really say I think we have lost sight of the humanities mm -hmm. and that we need both science and the humanities in, uh, in everything we do. And you know, as an academic, I've sort of gone back to the philosophy and the humanities to sort of think we've, you know, we are humans. Um, we're not just about data and numbers and systems and processes. So I don't know whether that answers your question, but being more human, um, I found great work in the NHS, but I did find a lot of formulaic type things where almost senior bosses overreacted and said, oh my God, we've got to listen, so let's make sure there's a survey on every desk and let's ask every person every day. But then I found a lack of, I talked to three researchers there and they were drowning in the data and not able to analyse all those surveys that were coming in. Listening is what you do with what you hear more than it's what you hear.
Yeah, and I think, sorry, my question was, original question was really similar to yours, and I was looking for how do we incentivise organisations if they're not open, how do we shift them? And, and frequently I do hear it's the emotional story and the one-to-one -one kind of narratives yeah. that turns people around to this, but then it's that question of how do you scale it up, you know, and yeah. create... Those are the problems I'm dealing with, and the, the point about how to convince management... Uh, I'm a philosopher on one hand and a pragmatist on the other. You've got to be a pragmatist to try and get things done. And I'm working with a, a large mutual corporation in Europe at the moment, and the only way, they've given me license to look at a lot of things they're doing and critique them, but the only way I know to convince management is to show benefits. You've got to show benefits of it. So what we're trying to do quite pragmatically is pick some low-hanging fruit, as I call them. Don't try and solve all the world's problems. Pick something like complaints. And what if I can show that by a certain process we can reduce complaints, because I know how much each complaint costs to process, and in one case we've reduced $480,000 worth of time in complaints handling. I can take that back to management and talk their language and say, I can save you half a million, sorry, euro, half a million euro by this process and probably reduce crises and incidents that take up time. So pragmatically, I think we've got to take leadership with us and we've got to show benefits. I think one of the things I saw, we took a fixer to a conference with 1,500 paediatricians in the room yeah. um, and promoted by a nurse and actually there was a presentation um, done and her fixer's film was shown. She was not identified but she was actually in the audience and mm. they didn't know that. Mm. Um, and um, the, it was about the power play between doctor and child. Mm. Um, and you could have heard a pin drop. Um, and that was the impact of that across that space was huge. So I would actually suggest that in everything that you do, where there are forums of people coming together, you find a moment to put some lived experience in there so that that can happen. Absolutely. They're not, they're not meeting people. It's just, it's not. That human thing is not happening. Yeah. And actually, you know, in, in television news terms, whenever there's a big government policy announcement, particularly the budget, you know, the, 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 um, the media always home in on an individual yeah, or a story. family to see the effect on them, you know. And, 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 and so, I mean, that's going the other way, uh, but that also gives the government a reaction to what, to what they have decided to do. Uh, whether that informs policy, subsequent policy, I don't know, but, but, uh, but, but you're, you're absolutely right. Yes. Hello, I'm Carla Russ. I work for um, the Wellcome Trust in their public engagement department. Um, I completely agree. I think you have to create a, a case for listening by evidencing what gets better for organisations, and not just government, but all organisations have a stake in society. Um, and then I think it's linking an organisation's success to society. Success, that's the, the bridge, so it's not just about their internal success. Because I think the other interesting thing about that is that we all belong to organisations. We are individuals, but we go into organisations and we have a vested interest in their survival. And so even your own views and opinions, you can contradict once you're inside an organisation and making sure the stuff that needs to happen, happens. Um, so I think once you make that case, that filters down to creating the listening capabilities that you're talking about, capacity, whether that's skills, technology, learning how to listen, 
But then I think you have to keep going right down to individual job design because I actually think a number of people have mentioned it. I think chronic busyness is a real problem. So we have job design where you have all of these things which you need to achieve and they, they kind of out-design listening and openness in a way. So it's sort of linking that case all the way down to creating blank space in jobs and that blank space is about the listening and then the acting on the listening. Because I think you need that to pair it with the pin drop moments, the moments where you think, my God, this is so important that I must act on this. But if you've no capacity to act on it, they kind of get lost. And then you just end up with guilt for the rest of your life because you think, my God, I didn't act on this really important insight. So a lot of it is just about normal humanness and human features, but the systems around it that, that enable you to be your best human you can be within organisations. It's interesting you say that. I did analyse job descriptions among, I mentioned I did ethnography interviews and content analysis, and I interviewed 125 job descriptions of people in a communication role, and listening was never ever mentioned in any of them. And I just found that really interesting. They're in communication, but... There's no requirement to listen. And, and so, a job spec. And that's what I mean by the architecture of speaking. It's the fields that I work in, like advertising and PR and journalism, they are taught to talk and distributing, and we somehow think communication, you know, is telling people stuff. And actually the best communication, if we have a problem with our spouse, our children, is listening to them, is actually far more beneficial. So you're right, it's trying to get that into the culture. You might have wondered why I put that slide at the end, or you may not be, but my, it was my last slide, but I like to look at that sometimes and think, we've actually, going back to technology not being the total answer, we have the technology to listen to the universe for human life outside of outside of Earth, we can't actually listen to each other. So but technology's but, not the answer. But thankfully nothing is coming the other way. <laughs> <laughs> they may be listening to us <laughs> and saying we don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, well, look, we're, we're about to wrap up. Could, could I just throw in one final thought? And, and Nick, it was to do the three deficits oh, yeah. that you talked about in trust, in legitimacy, and in particular in knowledge. Yes. Now, um, I, I reckon, to cut it short, there are about 40 to 50 million people in this country who are not watching a properly constructed news program in the evening. The average audience for the 6, 6.30 and the two 10 o'clock bulletins is 2.5 million. So assuming no overlap, 10 million there, maybe half a million for Newsnight or half a million for Channel 4 News if they're lucky. That's 11 million people watching a program which actually not only gives you the news that the editor thinks you'd be interested in, but, but the news that you ought to be interested in, because it's important for the future of the country, the world, the city in which we live. So that means 30 to 40 million people are not getting their news from that, those relatively reliable sources. They're either switching off news altogether, because it's all too depressing, or the majority of those are actually getting their news from the internet. Now, the internet was the great bastion of democracy and, you know, Arab Spring and look what happened to that and so on. But are we into a period of 10 to 15 years where, the, where people are becoming their own news editors? They are choosing only the stories, the kind of stories that they're interested in, the kind of headlines they're interested in. So, you, you know, you might do cricket, the oil industry and Strictly Come Dancing or whatever it might be. But, but at the end of the day, you will find a dumbing down of people's knowledge about what is happening in the world because they have become their own news editors. And I just wonder if, 
if we are heading for a generation that is going to be less informed, paradoxically less informed because of this great democratic tool called the internet, are the, are the views from a growing number of people less valuable and less worth listening to? Well, because they don't have perspective. We are in the middle of a very big problem around news. Most of my time I work on media, not voice. But uh, I think, again, curiously, it links back to listening. And the, the reason I think that is this. Yeah, it's hard to find good journalism. There are big economic issues. But the there, are, uh, there are other deeper issues, which is why do... Why are people oriented to news at all? At LSC in the mid-2000s, we did a pro project called a Public Connection. And we asked people a very simple question, which is why do you face in the direction of the public rather than just stay with what you know around you, your life? What are the incentives to listen to what's going on in the public world at all? And one of the most important things we found that was a disincentive for people in Britain in the mid-2000s, around the time post-Iraq War March, all those very dark times, was people had nowhere to go and talk about the news. This was before social media. They had nowhere to go. They, they religiously read the news every day, but in the end, no one cared. No one really cared whether they had an informed view or did at all. They will vote every once in five years, but then that might not make a difference either. And so we do now have social media context where people are in touch. The problem is they're often toxic. They're often toxic places. So this idea of bringing listening into the places of social media as well as an incentive that people will actually read the news because they know they can actually have a more enriched conversation. There are tremendous things we could do, but we can't just start from the point of the newsroom fundamental though that is as well. We need to think about the quality of the social processes where people have a chance to talk, which means, of course, actually being listened to yeah. and being valued for being informed. We've lost those contexts. Churches are not very important, uh, and so on and so forth. Those contexts where people are valued for being listened, informed as they speak to others, those are declining too, and we need to think about this. And Fixus provides one of those contexts in a very deep way, mm. I believe. When, when, when I was uh, chairing YouthNet, which is now the mix, uh, of course, but, but um, we, we had a debate based on some information, uh, some research done at the University of Lancaster, mm -hmm. and it was about what young people are thinking. And one of the guys we had on the panel, I, I mean, I won't go into the research, but I threw in a question at the end um, to this young guy called Charlie, I've forgotten his second name, but he's got a, a, a website called charlieiscool.com or something like that, you know? And this, this guy from nowhere, he's got 20 million followers around the world. And I said, uh, I said, as a matter of interest, what television news, you know, radio news do you, do, you, you know, do you get your information from? He said, oh, I don't listen to television news, I don't listen to radio. I said, so you're into newspapers? He said, no, 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 I don't read any newspapers. My mates and I don't read any newspapers. He said, so you're not interested in news? He said, I'm very interested in news. I said, well, where do you get it from? And his answer absolutely horrified me. He said, quote, we get our news from bloggers we have learned to trust. Not, not any of the conventional outlets, but this is, this is so they are listening, mm -hmm. but they're listening to people who they instinctively have learned to trust. Mm -hmm. But and, and actually, I have to tell you, that's where fixers come in, because what they were looking for was peer-to-peer, -peer mm -hmm. an information relationship, peer-to-peer. Mm -hmm. -peer. And that's what fixers is absolutely all about. So anyway, can I thank you very much? In Sorry, do you want to comment on that? No, no, I can't. <laughs> you pointed at a very big problem. We're not going to solve it in the next moment. <laughs>
time to wrap up, time to wrap up. Thank you all very much for coming. Can I especially thank Nick and Jim and Margot for, uh, you know, what has been uh, absolutely riveting. I, I was not expecting it to be as <laughs> riveting. Uh, to be absolutely honest. Like so you had low expectations. <laughs> Sorry, Margot, I shouldn't say that. But it was absolutely <laughs> tremendous stuff, and I can't thank you enough for all the thinking that you've been doing on this, and uh, and, and really, really great stuff. Thank you. Can we give a round of applause? Thank you for listening to this podcast, brought to you by Fixes. <laughs>